But I mean, at the end of the day, I think every athlete wishes, you know, they had one more shot or, you know, they got one more at bat or whatever their sport is. You just wish you had one more. But I, I like to think that basketball for me, while it um, was a tremendous part of my life and it's, it's opened a lot of doors for me, I hope that's a small chapter in the book of my life. And I think that's how I related to it now, you know, as a grown adult. I'd rather my story be defined by the successes I help other people create through my foundation and less about what I did on a basketball court when I was playing for Madrid against Barcelona, for example. This is Ryan Martin, professional wheelchair basketball player, president of the Ryan Martin Foundation, motivational speaker, and you are listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Today I'm excited to bring you Ryan Martin, who is a professional basketball player. He's the president of the Ryan Martin Foundation. He's a motivational speaker, and he's also a coach. And uh, Ryan was... Uh, diagnosed with spina bifida when he was born, and he eventually had to have uh, both of his legs amputated because of this. Um, but that didn't stop him from you know, going on to uh, a professional basketball career and really inspiring a lot of people a- along the way and along his journey and helping out a lot of other athletes in, in similar situations uh, through the Ryan Martin Foundation. So, uh, Ryan, excited to have you on. And uh, can you start off by kind of explaining the early part of your story and what spina bifida actually is uh, to our audience? Sure, Kevin. First, thanks uh, thanks for having me on, and I look forward to uh, chatting with you uh, and sharing my story. So I was born with uh, spina bifida, and spina bifida is a pretty common birth defect. And for me, it was the, the simplest terms is, is when your spine doesn't fuse together correctly at birth, and there's various levels of that, um, you know, that leads to different levels of paralysis. And so for me, my spine did not fuse together right at the L2 portion of the vertebrae and so I was born with legs and had a lot of medical complications with them with getting infections in uh you know in parts of my legs as a child so uh my doctors when I was was really little about two years old decided that they would amputate above the knee in precaution um to prevent some of the infections and some of the issues I was uh dealing with at the time from spreading to other parts of my body um it's from my understanding, and um, I'm adopted, so a lot of my family history or, you know, my early history isn't necessarily open information for me at this point. Um, it was pretty uncommon for them to do an amputation at that level, but, you know, it, it kind of is what it is at this point, and, uh, you know, it, I, I feel very fortunate because I work with a lot of athletes who are you know, whether they're veterans who are coming back from the war, individuals who suffer spinal cord injuries, and, you know, they talk about this tremendous transition. For me, this is the only situation I've ever known. And so at this point, you know, it, it, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I've had other similar guests say similar things on here when you, you had things that were you were born with. Um, but I guess I'm kind of curious about the infection thing. Like, what about 
you know, the placement of your spina bifida and the infections, like what causes those infections, I guess, and makes it dangerous uh, to you? Yeah, you, you know, I mean, like, so, like, in simplest terms, because, uh, you know, I, I can explain the generics and the basics, but definitely uh, did not do well in science in school, let alone kinesiology and all those sort of things. Me either. But, so basically, if you would get a yeah, so if you would get an inf- uh, a, a small cut on your foot and potentially it would get infected and that infection could, you know, spread or get into your bloodstream, you know, that would be the concern. And I know from the background history that I've been able to acquire, um, a lot of times that sort of stuff spreads. And then once it starts spreading, then it becomes, a, uh, you know, a much larger issue. And so, you know, I think the doctors were very proactive in their uh, approach with that. And like I said, you know, for me, I think my disability has opened more doors for me than it's closed. Um, and I feel kind of fortunate in regards to never having to suffer like a transitional period um, with my disability. And so, like, you know, where most individuals who suffer a spinal cord injury or veterans who come back after serving our military, you know, they're used to grabbing their sneakers and going on with their day. For me, I always grab my wheelchair, so there was no there was no mental hurdle to get over. This was just always the case, if that makes sense. Right. No, that makes sense. And I guess I'm 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 curious about your interaction with like the veterans and the people who suffer these spinal cord injuries. Do you have a hard time relating to them because you didn't experience that uh, transition period, or like do you easily connect with them like right off the bat? Like how do you kind of approach approach that? Um, you know, I I feel like uh, everybody kind of has their disabilities are all different. Uh, and so like, I, I feel like I connect with people beyond their disability, just on, you know, my story. I think my disability is only a small part of who I am and, and what I bring to the table. So it, it, you know, and I think a lot of times when I'll meet with somebody who, you know, or I'll work a veteran camp, you know, or different things like that, it, it's not about how you got there. It's about how you're dealing with your situation. And so, you know, whether I was born with it or whether it was a spinal cord injury, there's a lot of relatability to that. And so I just try to offer my experiences. And then I've, I've been very fortunate to, you know, kind of transcend a lot of barriers and have some unique opportunities. And so I hope that is motivating to other individuals, whether they're a young kid that are work that, you know, that are working through their disability from birth or an early age or, you know, somebody who acquires their disability later in life. All right. And so you work with uh, athletes from all ends of the spectrum, it sounds like. Um, and and you, you mentioned earlier that you were adopted as a child. And I, when I was doing my research on you, uh, preparing for the interview, I saw that you, you were adopted into a family with a lot of kids with, with special needs. Um, so do you think that kind of helps you with that relatability factor? Like how, how did, was that experience uh, with being adopted uh, into your family? Um, how does that influence kind of, you know, you today and how you interact with uh, the people that you coach and, and come across? Yeah. You know, I, I think first um, I think growing up in the family that I, I did grow up was a, a tremendous lesson for me because I got to see what real adversity is. You know, I feel that my disability, while it has some challenges and, you know, I have my difficult days and, uh, you know, much like everybody else, I think I saw and I grew up 
around individuals who were dealing with things that were more difficult and potentially more life-threatening than mine. So it, it gave me perspective. And, and the one, uh, one of the things I think it probably instilled in me at a very, very young age was the idea of, you know, kind of reaching your maximum, whatever that can be, because, you know, even if your maximum is half of what the other person's is, you know, it's a, um, it's still a gift to be able to have those abilities and have those opportunities. So I've always tried to be the person who uh, capitalizes on that. And that's kind of what I try to get across with my foundation when we work with athletes with disabilities. I mean, we have kids in my Connecticut program, in my Madrid program as well, that are as young as five or six years old. And we just try to get them to understand that, like, while there are limitations, that I'm, I'm not going to lie to them and say, you know, that everything is easy for them. It, it's, a, it's about, you know, seizing the opportunities you do have and then also, you know, being able to get the most out of what your potential is. Yeah, and uh, you've obviously done that yourself, but what was, like, the moment, like, was there a specific moment that you remember kind of realizing this of trying to reach, like, your maximum potential? You know, I, I, I honestly don't know if there was, you know, like a, a Hollywood moment, like a, like, you know, a mirage that was like, oh, wow, this is it. I just think constantly day after day, you know, like I grew up in a pretty unique situation where, you know, I had siblings that like I had to help feed them or help them get ready for school and different things like that. And so it, it gives you perspective and no one needs to tell you that because you live it every day. Right. So uh, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but I don't know if I can point to a a specific moment where I was like, oh, wow, I need to do this because or, you know, it was just kind of a constant experience and a constant um, reinforcement of that message. Okay. And I guess another on on that same line with reaching maximum potential, I feel like there's I mean, it's already like automatically kind of built into that definition of like kind of comparing yourself to other people. And I know for me, that was something that I struggled with uh, after my injury was kind of comparing myself to where my friends were at and stuff like this. And it's kind of a hard, it's a, I guess I I felt it was a negative thing to do in my recovery. So how do you kind of approach uh, that comparison, you know, in, uh, I guess trying to reach your maximum potential uh, with a disability. You, you know, I, I think there, there's, all, you know, there's, there's two things. I think there is the idea that you want to be able to maximize what your potential is and you want to, you know, I think the worst thing in life is, is wasted talent and wasted potential. I think that's the most tragic thing when you see somebody who, really never put it together, you know, and it wasn't for, you know, it was a lack of effort. I think ultimately, and what I try to get across is like, listen, we all have our own abilities and we all have our own challenges, but, you know, one thing that you should never be, you'd never have an issue with is your effort. You know, for me, like uh, as a professional athlete relating this back to sports, for example, so I played 10 years as a, a professional athlete. I got to see the world but making a Paralympic team, which is considered like the zenith of our sport, was always out of my grasp. You know, it was close. You know, I've, I had tryouts. and You know, it was something that was definitely, you know, on the horizon, if you will. 
but I can take solace in the fact that I don't think I left anything on the table. And it wasn't because I didn't commit to this or I didn't train or didn't do that. And so I think as an athlete, you know, while you hope that there are no limits, um, inevitably there are some. So understanding what, you know, your absolute potential is, I think is really important in that regard. All right. And you, you kind of just mentioned that although you, you know, you are a professional basketball player, uh, there were teams that you were trying to get on that you didn't quite make the cut for. So how did you kind of handle uh, those situations when you didn't meet maybe your own expectations or your own hopes? You know, I, I think you, I think the only thing that, you know, you just kind of have to reevaluate with that, you know? So I was, you know, as a basketball player, remarkably successful, but I just, I couldn't reach that pinnacle. I couldn't reach the peak of that sport. And, and for me, that continued to drive me to, you know, to get to that level. And it probably furthered, you know, it probably kept me playing in Europe a little bit longer. And it probably allowed me to reach different levels um, as a pro player than I would have because I was striving for that. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think every athlete wishes, you know, they had one more shot or, you know, they got one more at bat or whatever their sport is. You just wish you had one more. But I, I like to think that basketball for me, while it um, was a tremendous part of my life and it's, it's opened a lot of doors for me, I hope that's a small chapter in the book of my life. And I think that's how I related to it now. You know, as a grown adult, I'd rather my story be defined by the successes I help other people create through my foundation and less about what I did on a basketball court when I was playing for Madrid against Barcelona, for example. You know, like sports are great, but sports are only great if you use it as a vehicle in other disciplines. And I, you know, so while my failures to, you know, and I, and I consider them failures because I think that was my goal. Um, you know, to make a, a U.S. national team or things like that. Um, while I did fail in those areas, I would be more disappointed in myself if I failed in other aspects of my life. I think a lot of times, you know, elite level athletes struggle to find that balance in life, you know, because they're all about, you know, winning that race, being the best athlete they can. And that's great. But I think the best athletes find that balance, you know, the elite athletes do. And so for me, I think, the the most important thing is what I'm doing now and not necessarily what I did on a basketball court. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice and that's something that I, it took me a long time to kind of figure out. Uh, but, you know, it took me probably 10 years to figure that out that, you know, I don't need football to kind of prove my worth to the world or whatever. There's plenty of other things. And a lot of it is, like you said, like helping other people, you know, reach their uh, maximum potential like, like you, you, you have been doing. Um, my next question is, can you kind of explain, you know, the landscape of what uh, wheelchair basketball looks like and kind of explain the rules and uh, how it differs from traditional style basketball and how it's the same also? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the two major differences, you know, probably the predominant major difference is the chair, you know, so with, obviously with all the athletes being in uh, sports chairs, you you know, you take away lateral movement, you take away jumping. So there is no double dribble in the sport, and that's supposed to compensate for the lack of lateral movement. And then traveling is two pushes without dribbling the basketball versus two steps. 
And those are probably the two primary major differences. You know, the basketball hoop is the same height. The three-point line is the same height. Basketball size is the same height. And so um, the, so that's kind of a, a gist of it. In the U.S., we probably have the uh, we have the NWBA, which is the National Wheelchair Basketball Association, and that is kind of the governing body of all wheelchair basketball, whether it's at the collegiate level, at the junior level, um, whether it's at the adult level. And then the only professional leagues that exist exist over in Europe, and that format pretty much takes the form of like what, uh, you know, the soccer format where you play for the league title and then you play for European Cups and different things like that. So that's kind of like a just a real quick, uh, quick uh, brief explanation of the way wheelchair basketball is. And so um, I think it's one of those things that you have to see a game. And I think once you see a game at a, at a, at a really high level, you know, I think it's, it'll hook you as, as a fan. You know, one of the questions I often get asked, Kevin, is why is there not, you know, professional basketball uh, for individuals in wheelchairs here in the U.S. because we have, you know, all these different sports and we're an oversaturated sports market and different things like that. Um, I think one of the, you know, my, my go-to answer for that when I do interviews and I get asked that question is I think there's a stigma surrounding um, adaptive sports, wheelchair basketball included, and then I don't think anybody has found a way to make it financially lucrative and create a business model because obviously all professional sports in the U.S. are, uh, you know, designed to make money. And so I think when someone's able to create a business model that makes sense, you'll start seeing it. But from a viewership and a fanship and, you know, the product of the sport, I think, you know, the product is uh, is definitely viewable, marketable, and things like that. I just think someone hasn't come along to figure out the business side of it. All right. That, that's all interesting stuff. Uh, I have a few other questions about the sport itself. Like, does sure. does height still play a role, uh, even though any, everyone is in the same maybe size bas- or uh, size uh, wheelchair? Chair? Yeah. Well, no. So, like, so that, that's a great question. Height, height is unbeatable, you know, because in a sport where you can't jump, and in a sport where you don't have lateral movement, if you just happen to be taller. And then, you know, all the chairs aren't built the same. The chairs are really customized down to the individual athlete. You know, it's customized to your size, weight, arm length, what kind of style do you, you know, what kind of style basketball player are you? You know, if you're a tall player, you should sit in a taller chair because height is king. And, you know, if you get a big guy who can get inside, and no one can jump to block their shot, they're going to be just that much more deadly. Um, and so definitely height is a huge, huge factor. Um, speed is obviously a huge factor. All the variables that would make you a – or give you the opportunity to be a successful able-bodied athlete uh, transcend in a chair. You know, So if you just happen to be super quick, you know that's an advantage. If you happen to be extra tall, that's a huge advantage. And so you kind of have to, when you start playing the sport, you start in a basic wheelchair like everybody else does. But then as you progress, it gets down to almost, you know, like kind of the best example would be like the cyclists who, you know, compete in the Tour de France where everything's down to ounces and it becomes its own little science creating the, you know, the right angles and the right weight and all the, 
you know, your center of gravity and your weight, uh, your weight to power ratios and different things like that. So height is, height is huge. Um, speed is huge. And the right chair setup is huge. You know, the, um, there's, you know, at the highest level, guys get chairs every year. You know, like when I played in Europe, I would travel with two chairs and extra wheels just in case they would break. It becomes, um, you know, just much like every other athlete, uh, who is competing at a high level, you have to have the right equipment. And wheelchair basketball is no different from that. I mean, chairs can range from anywhere to, you know, three, four, five, six thousand dollars, depending on what you want to do stylistically with the chair. And so it's, uh, the equipment is really important, but getting back to your initial question, uh, Definitely, definitely, definitely height is a, is a huge factor. Yeah, so it sounds like there's not like any standards on the chair itself. Like it could pretty much be whatever the athlete wants, right? No, so there are some regulations. You know, they, they don't want you in a chair that looks like a monster truck, if you will. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you do have limits as far as, you know, uh, height and, and width and different things like that. Um, so there are limits, but you can also, you know, depending on how you feel comfortable, you can put that chair up pretty tall and you can put a, a larger set of wheels. It all kind of just depends on, you know, whatever your skill set is and designing your equipment uh, around your skill set. All right. And how fast can the chairs go on the court? Like on average, is it like comparable to uh, like uh, regular basketball? So... That's a great question. I wish I could give you a number. I feel like I, I'm unprepared for this interview question. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, they, they can go fast. I mean, like, I think uh, the, the best way for me to answer that, Kevin, is if you were to see a wheelchair basketball game at a high level, you would be absolutely floored that someone could move that quickly. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking, like, like hockey is, like, almost football on skates sometimes, and, like, those guys are flying, like, you know – 35 miles an hour on the ice and like with with wheels on the court who knows how, how fast you could go so uh what basically i mean you've been coaching uh wheelchair basketball so what's like the learning curve been like you know is it something that people pick up generally pretty easily or is it just like you know any other sport uh obviously where there's you know you have your your natural born athletes and you have the ones that it comes a little harder to them you know i i think there are it, it kind of depends on the person. You have some folks who are naturally athletic and they pick to the sport uh, pretty well. You'll have a lot of able-bodied individuals who will suffer an injury and they'll pick up the sport because they have some, uh, you know, some background knowledge in disabled or in able-bodied sports. And then as soon as they learn the chair, they end up becoming pretty effective as uh you know, an adaptive athlete. So it, it really kind of all depends. Uh, and it also depends on like disability level, you know, sometimes depending on, you know, if somebody's really, really spastic, do they have full muscle function? Do they have full core? And uh, wheelchair basketball, for example, is a pretty inclusive sport. You have a lot of individuals with various disabilities and different diagnoses who are able to play, whether it's somebody with spina bifida or somebody with, uh, uh, somebody who suffered a car accident, somebody who was an amputee. And so it kind of really depends 
a lot on the level of disability, but also their natural ability. Um, you know, if someone was, is a natural athlete, that's going to shine through in wheelchair basketball. And if somebody's exceptionally strong, you know, that's going to shine through um, a, as well. I think that, you know, the biggest difference is the individual disabilities and how that plays a role in each athlete's uh, abilities. Okay. And what do you see, see being the most difficult aspect of wheelchair basketball compared to traditional basketball? The jumping aspect or? I, I think the for somebody starting out, having worked with a lot of kids uh, in, my, in my camps that we do in the summer year-round, um, or the summer all around the world, is learning the ball handle and handle the chair at the same time. And then still being able to, you know, be effective as, as reading the floor and looking up. That seems to be the biggest challenge. And then also developing the strength because if you're sitting at a, in a chair and you're trying to shoot a three-pointer and you have no legs to, to shoot with, that makes it an extra challenge. So making sure that your mechanics are really tight so you're not wasting energy on your shot, I would say is, is probably the, is one of those challenges. But I think, um, I think from a kid's perspective and a maturation perspective, athletes being able to handle the ball and handle the chair at the same time. All right. Yeah, I can imagine that being pretty difficult. Uh, so what what did Ryan look like before basketball? And can you kind of take us through the journey that you ultimately led that ultimately led you to find basketball? Yeah. So um, I I grew up in a in the family like I mentioned earlier in the interview with. A lot of, you know, that was like a larger family. So we always did sports together. And I actually never knew wheelchair basketball existed as a young kid. I just used to play um, basketball with, you know, with my neighbors across the street or with my siblings in the backyard. And to me, it was sports was that way for me to fit in. Um, and especially, you know, at school where I was the only individual with a disability. So having sports or being able to talk sports or being able to shoot hoops with the kids at recess or, you know, play kickball and have somebody kick for me and I push the bases um, was really, really important for me to fit in. And I would have never possibly imagined that, you know, wheelchair basketball would give me all the gifts that it has given me um, currently. And I think that's why I'm so adamant towards giving back through my foundation and working with a lot of individuals because I know what that did for me as far as, uh, as a sense of like socialization, a, social, uh, a source of building my confidence in, in a, um, a feeling of belonging, um, you know, within my school and, you know, creating friend groups and things like that, like every kid wants. So I hope that, you know, my programs through my foundation uh, allow other kids to do that as well. And did you, uh, you know, experience any bullying as a kid? I mean, it sounds based on what you just said, it sounds like you had some pretty supportive friends and stuff, you know, you said like pushing you around the bases and like that, uh, you know, but did you experience the opposite? Oh, I, I, pushed, I pushed myself. Oh, you did? I pushed myself around. Oh, someone kicked yeah, for I you. Was, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I was always, I was always pretty stubborn, um, with <laughs> that sort of stuff. I, I still am. Um, if you ask people, they'll just be like, why don't you, you know, it's just kind of who I am. Um, you know, yeah, definitely. I think trying to fit in when you're the only individual with a disability and, you know, I grew up in more of an affluent area and, uh, you know, when you adopt that many kids with special needs, you, generally speaking, money isn't going to be, um, 
you know, money isn't going to grow on trees, as they say. So I, I definitely dealt with that a lot. I think it, um, you know, looking on this side of it, I think it definitely made me a stronger person. But I think in society, I think we need to stop looking at bullying as just being a rite of passage. I think a lot of times adults will say, oh, well, you know, like I dealt with that as a kid, you know, so so-and-so will deal with that as well. I, I don't understand why that needs to happen still um, as far as dealing with that. And, you know, I do a lot of speaking engagements at schools, whether it's, uh, you know, middle schools or high schools, and I'll tell my story. And I'll also, you know, kind of encourage kids to, you know, to speak out because one of the things I probably did was, you know, I probably internalized a lot of the the feelings I was getting from, you know, being bullied and not necessarily fitting in and different things like that and being made fun of. And I wish, you know, if I could tell my, you know, adult Ryan could tell teenage Ryan, you know, kind of how to handle something, I would just kind of be more vocal and kind of stand up for myself a little bit more um, in that regard. So I think that um, one of the things I do, I try to do in a lot of my speaking engagements is explain like, hey, you know, how the scars that that really does cause somebody. And I think we start to see that around the country you know, and around the world, uh, as a matter of fact, where you see kids tell their story and talk about their experiences of going to school and dealing with bullying. I mean, I'm a, I'm a grown man and I, and I still feel that one of the most important things I can do through my foundation is do speaking engagements where I talk about, you know, what that did to me and, and kind of help embrace the model of, you know, inclusion and understanding that everybody's different because you know, for me, like that, that was a, a major hurdle in my life that I was fortunate to overcome. But I would be naive to think that most individuals have kind of the storybook ending that I've been able to enjoy. Yeah, you hear some horror stories about, uh, you know, students and bullying and, you know, kids go to some extreme measures to kind of cope with, with that stuff. And I'm sure that your story, you know, will resonate with, with the students out there. Um, so when did you come to the realization that how you carry yourself is, is how you are perceived? And I was watching one of the videos of when you were doing one of these presentations and you said that, and that was something that really, you know, stuck out to me. Um, and I think our listeners will, will benefit from, from that answer. Yeah. So for me, I, I realized probably at an early age as, as a kid, um, that, you know, everybody's going to see my disability, you know, of a double amputee uh, in a wheelchair, and I'm really hard to miss in a crowd. And I can't change what they um, what they see. I can only control their uh, how they re- you know how they respond to me. And their first impression is already perceived. It's already out there. And so how I carry myself and how I communicate with them is their lasting impression, and I think that's really important, how I carry myself. And when we work with uh, kids through my foundation, we often talk about, like, you know, being able to self-advocate, you know, being able to tell your story and stick up for yourself. And we talk about how important that is just in the grand scheme of, you know, changing perception. Uh, and and I can't I can't stress that enough to kids that, you know, listen, they're going to, you know, they're going to judge you based on what they see, but you do have the opportunity to, you know, 
change their opinion on how you carry yourself and how you respond to them. Do you have a specific example? Yeah, I think any time, every time I go to, I go into a room, you know, um, I think people will look at me and then when I start talking and I share my story, you know, I think probably the, the best way to sum up that as an example would be, you know, I'll go in and speak in front of a school of, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred students and they'll all, you know, have these preconceived notions based on my appearance. And then as I share my story, you can start to see my examples in, in my storytelling start to tear down some of those barriers, tear down some of those walls and those preconceived ideas. I think that, um, you know, no one would expect like, oh, okay, that I'm an athlete who's traveled the world, that I speak, you know, that I speak Spanish, that I do, that I've experienced some of the experience I've, I've been fortunate to have. And so I think it's, you know, it's often, you know, we say, okay, don't judge a book by its cover, but I think it's okay to judge a book by its cover as long as you're willing to invest more and learn more. And so I'm always very happy to, you know, speak to individuals, whether they're individuals with a disability or without a disability, and kind of explain my story with hopes of, you know, kind of changing some of that, some of that belief system out there. I love that. Uh, have you tried any other adaptive sports? And I know, like, the adaptive sports landscape is kind of broadened and it's become almost like a buzzword, at least uh, in the world that I'm living in. Uh, and, like, how, how has that changed, like, since you were a kid to compared to now? Like, what opportunities exist now that, that weren't opportunities when, when you were growing up? You know, that, that's a great thing. I think for me, you know, like, when I started playing junior, ba- junior wheelchair basketball, I had to go play for a team in Boston. And there wasn't very many other programs around that offered that same thing. I think there's more programs now. I think you're starting to see, um, you know, more adaptive sports programs. I think you're starting to see, you know, like kind of the unified sports culture as well existing, you know, Special Olympics um, programming for those in, for those individual athletes. And I think that's great because I think what we're understanding is what sports can do for people. And, you know, the importance of sports and having that connectivity um, with other individuals. And I think what we're finally realizing as a, as a society is the value of that and make sure we, you know, we foster that opportunity for, you know, all demographics, not just for, you know, the average kid who's going to school. Right, and it's awesome that you're advocating uh, for that. Uh, can you kind of give us a little uh, background or, or on what kind of projects you're working on? And I, I heard about your story through my summer intern who uh, is now he, – he's a student at UConn. And he told me uh, – he's like, yo, check out this guy, Ryan Martin. Uh, my intern's name is Alex Rubenfeld. And uh, he was okay. yeah he was a great intern and I checked you out I was like oh the, like so, so can you talk about the kind of projects that you're working on uh, with the NCAA and and at UConn specifically? Yeah, so currently what we're working on it, with through my foundation is we're trying to be a create a model that could um, be duplicated at multiple universities to start an adaptive sports program. Currently, you know, if we take wheelchair basketball. As an example, um, there's about 13 universities that offer that program uh, to student athletes on campus. And so what we're trying to do is spread that a little bit. I've consulted with several different universities 
who, you know, whether they're Division One school, Division Two school, Division Three school, um, and whether their goal is to create an intramural program or their goal is to create a competitive sports program, my personal belief is that when you look at the demographic least likely to go to college and the, and the demographic least likely to be gainfully employed, you're looking at individuals with disabilities. And so for me, I think universities that invest in adaptive sports programs will create that diverse campus that they all claim they want. And then as well, it provides a, um, a true inclusive environment on campus. I think a lot of universities will say, yes, we are accessible because of ADA limits and different things like that. But a true inclusive environment that um, actively looks for individuals with disabilities, I think, is fostered very easily by having an adaptive sports program. And what that does is it allows for societal improvement. You have individuals with disabilities who are now more likely to go to college. They're more likely to finish college because they're part of a program that's going to kind of you know, monitor them and make sure they get to graduation day. And so I think adaptive sports, while from a sporting perspective, is tremendous. I also think uh, from a diversity perspective and then also a societal change perspective um, is tremendously huge. You know, one of the examples I often use when I speak at universities is talking about Title IX and how Title IX really, you know, got more women into college and it provided more opportunity. I think the same thing needs to be done for individuals with disabilities and creating more university opportunities for these students to be student athletes, which I think would create a large, you know, sociological effect across the country where you have more individuals with disabilities receiving a higher level of education as well as being um, more employable than they currently are. Is your vision like to have like uh, college scholarships and you know like the 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 regular NCAA like athletics like what that looks like today just for adaptive sports? Yeah, so like you know, I think one of the things that I would like to see if you know in a perfect world is I would like to see adaptive sports fall under the umbrella of the NCAA and have it be something that is offered at. at tons of universities across the country. I don't think we're there yet. I think we, um, you know, from my personal opinion and my personal experiences, we see more and more universities delving into that topic, looking into it and seeing how it affects their landscape. I mean, one of the things with uh, the University of Connecticut is I just thought, well, hey, this is my home state and I have, you know, X amount of athletes that are from Connecticut or the New England region there's absolutely no reason why we can't have this at the University of Connecticut. And I happen to be really good at networking and fundraising. And I kind of, you know, at the risk of sounding braggadocious, can kind of push that agenda a little bit. So, you know, we will start in November with adaptive sports programming. And I think what UConn is going to find and what many universities will find if they invest in this properly is they will find they get a diverse student that they were missing out on in the first place. And then I also think it just it, it creates an inclusive campus environment. Every university legally has to be accessible, but not all of them are inclusive. And so understanding the difference of inclusivity, if you look at you know, the elite adaptive sports programs at different universities. You would have to look at the University of Texas at Arlington, 
You would have to look at the University of Illinois. And these schools are consistently, you know, producing varsity-level athletes who are going to school on scholarships or partial scholarships. And in my personal opinion, and, you know, I don't think – I think UConn uh, can do the exact same thing. So that is one of, you know, where we are spending a lot of time and energy on my foundation to create this model and partner with the University of Connecticut to make this work. Because I think once we show how successful it can be at UConn, um, it could open the door for larger implementation across many different universities. I think the interesting thing we've been able to do at UConn is we've been able to, in a short period of time, you know, bring equipment onto campus and create a funding source for the program. And a lot of D1 universities, whether they, you know, with, that already have 20,000 students undergrad, um, you know, and graduate students and all these different kinds of things often have students with disabilities who are already going to campus. And, you know, I think the university is almost negligent for not providing these opportunities for students. So I'd like to see, you know, universities recognize their population a little better, offer this program to students. And then I think what they'll find is that this is going to be something that sets their university apart makes their university unique. I think if you are reasonably intelligent with funding and fundraising and budgeting, you should be able to make this a financially viable part of your community. And I hope within a short period of time, um, our partnership with UConn will show the NCAA and the USOC and all these governing bodies how well this can be done. Well, it sounds like an amazing plan to me, and I'm excited to see what what comes out of that. I'll be sure to be in touch with you and and Alex to see what's what's going on at at UConn. Um, and I know you were a college basketball player too. And um, you know how con- or how difficult was that to find a school when you were looking for colleges that had a, an adaptive uh, sports program um, when you when you went to school uh, versus today, I guess. Yeah, I was. I got recruited uh, because I was able to play junior ball with a uh, with a team in Boston, and we traveled around the country, kind of similar to the AAU model that exists currently. Um, and so I got recruited by a few different programs that had adaptive sports, and I chose the school that you know financially made the most sense for me, and then uh, you know educationally most, made the most sense as well. So there was uh, less universities that offered that opportunity back when I was going to school. So I'm happy to see that there are more universities that are looking into this. I just think one of the challenges when you introduce sports onto a college campus is talking about revenue versus non-revenue sports. And when you look at most schools, you know, they usually have maybe two or three school uh, sports that profit. And then the rest become, you know, kind of they kind of feed off, you know, whether it's football or basketball or whatever the main uh, the main uh, funder is within an athletic department. So I think anytime you add a non-revenue sport or a potentially non-revenue sport, that's difficult. I think there are implement, uh, implications to Title IX legislation if you would add adaptive sports. So it's it's a challenge, but I think any university that looks at you know, creating a, a diverse population and inclusive university um, could clearly see the merit of this. I mean, you know, probably 
one of the newer programs that's been really successful is Alabama and Alabama just the University of Alabama just broke ground on a ten million dollar facility just for adaptive sports on their campus. And so it clearly can be done. I think, you know, with Connecticut being a small state and me having the exposure as, you know, being a a professional athlete in the area, I hope that I can leverage, you know, my story and then also the fact that my foundation is turning out junior athletes who are going to other universities that would prefer to stay in Connecticut if they could. You know, last year, uh, of all the camps we ran, we had over 200 athletes um, who came to uh, our various camps, whether they were um, domestic or abroad, and eight of them are now playing at other different universities. So when I've talked to UConn, I've mentioned that not only – I'm not selling a pipe dream. I'm selling you actual student-athletes who are going elsewhere because you don't have this program. And so I'm able to speak to the viability of such an idea just because of um, the amount of athletes my junior program um, currently works with. Yeah, I think that Title IX argument makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, it seems like you know most schools are neglecting adaptive athletes. And another thing I'm curious about, you, you had mentioned it earlier on in, in this part of our discussion, is that um, people with disabilities tend are, are the ones that tend not to go to school and don't and not get jobs, you know, after school. Uh, I was just curious, like, why is that? Like, why do you think that is? You know. There's a lot of reasons, and I and I don't know if you could if I could necessarily pin one, um, and, and I would hesitate to pin one because I don't want to stereotype the entire, you know, uh, population of individuals with disabilities. But there's, you know, I I think the the lack of you know proper education and different things like that would be um, would be a lot of the reasons why that is um, the case. But I think that is. I think that is changing. I think you see more individuals with disabilities, um, you know, breaking down that barrier. And I think, you know, the, the research is out there. If you look at, like, Michael Cottingham's research from the University of Houston, the value of individuals with disabilities participating in adaptive sports versus their peers who don't participate in adaptive sports, their likelihood to go to college is significantly higher. Their like their likelihood to uh, become gainfully employed after college is significantly higher. So, you know, there, the argument can be made, and statistically, without boring your audience, I, I won't spit numbers here, but simply in theory, the argument could be made that, you know, if you create programs that actively recruit individuals with disabilities and provide this opportunity, you're not only are you providing something unique to your university, you're also saving money because now these individuals can go get their own job and now they become taxpayers instead of just, you know, going on, you know, Medicaid, Medicare and different things like that. And by no means am I bagging on individuals with disabilities who might need to use that measure because there's always extenuating circumstances. But I, I think when you look at that issue overall, you're talking about a major societal issue. And I think adaptive sports has proven that it can start to change that number. It can start to make that number more, you know, positive in the sense of encouraging more individuals to go to universities. And, you know, so like a lot of the, the 
counter argument that universities will present to me is they'll say, well, Ryan, how does having 12, you know, wheelchair athletes on our campus change the, the barrier? If you look at the programs around the country, you know, whether it's Texas, whether it's Wisconsin, whether it's Illinois, whether it's Arizona, whether it's Southwest State, where I went to school, you see those universities not only recruiting adaptive athletes, but recruiting other students with disabilities because it's now an inclusive environment. Now you have some of the the barriers figured out for a university, whether it's accessibility, whether, you know, all those issues that would potentially prevent a student with a disability going on campus. So I think my biggest question to university folks when I present on this subject is why not? Why would you not want to be a part of it? Why would you not want to be able to brand your university with something unique? You know, and the three questions that we get back, you know, probably most often are, A, you know, the startup cost to the level of equipment, um, the, the lack of know-how to create the adaptive sports program, and then they'll always argue the population, the population, the population isn't there. What you'll find is most major universities, and this is once again, I won't bore people with statistics, but you have individuals with disabilities on college campuses who will um, disclose their disability, and you have individuals who won't. So if you do a proper job of examining your population and getting the word out about creating adaptive sports programs, the population exists, especially when you start talking about having universities with 15 to 20,000 students to start a program. One of my biggest arguments with UConn is I already know, you know, that you had that currently they have 500 students who are listed as students um, with mobility impairment. Well, generally speaking, that is going to be your population of students who are going to participate in adaptive sports. And so the, the numbers are there. You know, I'm you know, partnering with UConn through my foundation to kind of take away some of that know-how. My foundation with um, is providing the equipment at UConn uh, to get the program started. So I think we will have um, a higher level of success at UConn because we are, you know, we're kind of partnering with the university and we're kind of guiding them through the process. But I also think that I know how many students, you know, like, for example, within the next three years, I'll graduate 13 kids through my adaptive sports programs in this state that would all love the opportunity to go to UConn and that would academically qualify. But if there's not a program, they will go to other universities. You know, I know within the last five years, I've probably sent 15 to 20, you know, from out of this Northeast region to other universities to do track or I've sent them to, you know, I've helped them get into other universities where they're not even doing adaptive sports because they're like, well, it's not here. I'll, you know, I'll compete in something else. I'll, you know, I'll find another outlet for this now, but this is where I'm going to go to school. So I think UConn, you know, talking specifically UConn, I think, like, I take that back. I know this can work at UConn. Now, my curiosity will be whether this model can be duplicated um, at other universities. That, that remains to be seen. But I would like to see realistically one adaptive sports program in each state at a university level, whether it's at a private school or whether it's at a state university. I think, you know, when you start looking at the demographics, 
of the individuals, all the individuals who are competing in adaptive sports, you know, whether they're somebody like me who is born with their disability or an individual who acquired their disability through a car accident, or all these veterans who were trying to work back into the societal fabric and get them back into the workforce, get them back into education. This is a great way to do this. I mean, you know, one of the camps that I that my foundation works in or partners with is, you know, we go down to Dallas and we help with the camp there, you know, for wounded warriors. And I've seen firsthand what wheelchair basketball and adaptive sports can do for these men and women who have paid almost the ultimate sacrifice for our, you know, for our country. It would be great if we could start filtering them back into educational systems where they have adaptive sports and they have that sense of normalcy and they're also working towards you know completing degrees and moving on. I think um, obviously I'm very passionate about this, but I think the numbers would back up my beliefs. Yeah, and I think that the veterans have kind of made adaptive sports like sexy, if you will. Like, they, I think that's kind of the reason why part of it, like, it's a kind of a buzzword in you know the uh, military and the sports community these days, especially like in sports like CrossFit and stuff like that. Um, but I definitely think your 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 plan makes sense to me. Um, is the biggest barrier to entry the equipment, like the startup cost, or? You know, I, I mean, I think I, I think that's part of the issue. You know, I know, like, from that, you know, that's uh, one of the bigger hurdles we find. And then also, you know, just you, your athletes are so spread out. You know, like, one of the biggest challenges, so let's say, you know, a university, you know, like here in Connecticut, St. Joseph's University wants to start a men's sports program and a men's basketball program for D3. You know, realistically, they can go to a high school and just recruit bodies, right? There's plenty of kids who will go play. So that's not the case when it becomes to adaptive sports. You might have one or two kids per campus, per high school, per town, per community that could participate. So you're really kind of spread out. So, um, you know, that becomes a large issue as well as, um, you know, that, that startup equipment, that getting a kid going. Okay. Uh, I have a kind of a random question as we start to wind the, the interview down here. Uh, what safety precautions are taken to kind of prevent injuries in the sport of wheelchair basketball specifically? Just because this is, we talk a lot about health and safety and preventing injuries on the podcast. So I, I was curious what that looked like in uh, wheelchair basketball. Sure. No, no, that's a fair question. I think probably the biggest injury would be shoulders. You know, you get a lot of rotator cuff injuries. Uh, clearly, you know, legs are stronger than arms normally. And we, if you're a wheelchair athlete, you put a lot of wear and tear on your rotator cuffs um, because, you know, your body's not meant to, you know, compete. Like, for example, an individual like me, um, you know, I, I wheel around. That's my main source of mobility. And then I also lift weights to, you know, work on my upper body. And then I also, you know, do adaptive sports as well. So, and for like, the listeners out there, Ryan's freaking Jack. So, <laughs> so like, so for sh- shoulders, um, is constantly an issue, you know, making sure. So a lot of, uh, a lot of band work, a lot of rotator cuff work 
And I mean, I'm 38 now, so I think, um, I think probably the recovery is the biggest challenge. You know, um, being able to be at your best consistently as opposed to doing it, you know, once in a while. You know, so understanding as a professional athlete, like supplements and how that plays a role um, in different things like that. Uh, fortunately, you know, like, so I, I'm sponsored by Advocare. And so I get all those supplements to take care of my body, the right kind of vitamins to, you know, prevent me from injury. But shoulders are, you know, probably the, the area that goes that uh, wheelchair athletes uh, face the most issues with. You know, whether it's a teared rotator cuff or different things like that. And then also, like from a training perspective, everything you do is pushing forward. So your shoulder muscles in the front are really, really, you know, really quite jacked. And then if you don't train your back muscles or your, your deltoid muscles, you're kind of uneven, which causes shoulder pain and issues like that. So, um, you know, a lot of that, some stuff you can prevent. You know, you can supplement right. You can rest right. You can... You know, you can do your best to recover, um, whether it's massage or ice or saunas and different things like that. But a lot of it is how you train and making sure that, you know, if you're going to train your shoulders, you train them properly. You know, as far as working the front, uh, the, the shoulder muscles and the back of the shoulder muscles. And then also strengthening those muscles that support your rotator cuff. Because once you have a rotator cuff tear, there's not really much you can do with it aside from operate on it. So, you know, working trying to make sure, you know, I do all those little, you know, those TheraBand workouts and, you know, where you tie the band onto a doorknob and you do all those, you know, those rotator things that, you know, seem monotonous and tedious, really uh, have tremendous value. Seems like you take care of your body. Uh, did you suffer any injuries throughout your career that, like, kept you out of the game for a while? No, nothing, nothing that was, uh, nothing that was sport-related. You know, I did uh, my second year playing in Europe. I did have a surgery on my leg to close a a burn on my leg that had had opened up, and then um, my circulation in in my uh, leg area obviously isn't what it should be because that's part of my level of disability, and so I missed time to recover that. But as far as like shoulders and different things like that, and shoulders and back, I, I I've been very very fortunate to. Um, you know, be able to avoid any major injuries, but I, I'm pretty tedious in uh, having to take care of that stuff. And I had a I had a great teammate, like when I first started playing overseas, uh, Josh Turek, who um, you know kind of really taught me a lot about how to take care of your body. He had been a professional athlete uh, a few years before me, and he really had talked you know about strengthening your rotator cuff and different things like that. So to be honest. I really learned quite a bit by following his regimen and then, you know, kind of tweaked it as I as I kind of figured out what worked for me and what didn't work for me. Really cool. Yeah, listen to the veterans. They've been through it. So. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, hey. Uh, and then this is a question I ask all my guests. What's your definition of toughness? So I, my definition of toughness is I think just um, competing to your maximum every day despite adversity i think that would be probably my simple no, my that, simple definition that's perfect yeah the reason why i ask is because I, I i'm trying to redefine what toughness is in our culture today and mm -hmm. i think a part of it 
part of the severity of my injury was due to what my definition of toughness was, which was like playing hurt and uh, scoring touchdowns and lifting the heaviest weight and that kind of thing. And I think that's what ultimately led to the severity of my injury. So therefore I'm trying to redefine, you know, what toughness is uh, through my, my guests and, and their definition. So, um, your definition was definitely in line with what I'm trying to do, so I, I appreciate that. And uh, just to finish yeah, I think, out, I think toughness. I think toughness is kind of just it, it varies. It depends on each individual, you know. Like, and I and I think you know one of the things is for athletes, I think we you know we push our body, but part of being an elite athlete or a successful elite athlete is understanding where your limits are and pushing to those limits, but also understanding that you know longevity is the key you know and and like you can be great one season but can you be great five seasons you can have a great game but can you have a great series and i think toughness is you know obviously a a part of that but i think intelligence as well and i think what you see i think you see a new breed of you know professional athletes and collegiate athletes who you know take their body as a business you know and they understand that if they can play 10 years versus eight years it's more money. So how do I make sure I can play 10 years? You know, I take care of my body. You know, when I when I feel something twinge, I get it taken care of. And I think, um, you know, I think football and a lot of our sports, like, oh, yeah, be tough. You can play through it. But the reality is there's, there's going to come a time where you face an injury or a setback, and it's going to be, okay, how do you maximize what you're capable of doing? I think for me, one of the things that, you know, um, that was good for me it was i got i got proactive you know i would ice after workouts or i would ice after games whether i needed it or not you know just to keep the inflammation down and just so i would be ready to go the next day and i think that is um i think that's really important when you start talking about you know becoming an elite athlete and so i don't think it's toughness that makes you a, a great athlete i think it's intelligence and I couldn't have scripted a better answer uh, for, for that. I, I loved every bit of that, that answer there, Ryan, so I appreciate that. Um, just as we, we wrap it up, uh, where can people find you on social media and support the Ryan Martin Foundation? Sure, yeah, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. Um, just Ryan Martin Foundation, or like if you want to follow me individually, it's, it's Ryan Martin 6 uh, Kevin, thanks for the opportunity to share my story course man yeah i'll link all that up in the show notes and uh i appreciate you know you you sharing your story on the podcast and i also appreciate you you know kind of paying it forward and you know helping other adaptive athletes uh kind of gain some of the same experiences and benefits that you've gotten from sports and basketball specifically uh so i, I commend you for that awesome kevin I, I look forward to listening to this podcast and let's uh let's connect down the road of course 